and welcome to the Taproot Podcast. I'm Liz Haswell. And I'm Ivan Baxter. Today's conversation continues our theme of asking what lessons we have learned over the last three years. It focuses on improving diversity, equity, and inclusion in STEM education and planning conferences. In both of these cases, the best way forward isn't always clear. There's so much to learn and think about. The pandemic did teach us all some lessons, but have we really learned them? That's what we talk about next. today is Jason Williams, Assistant Director of Inclusion and Research Readiness at the DNA Learning Center at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Jason is also lead for Cyverse Education Outreach and Training. He received his bachelor's in biology from SUNY Stony Brook in 2004 and then worked as a technician in several labs at Cold Spring Harbor, eventually transitioning to several roles in the DNA Learning Center in 2009. Today's paper was just published in Science and is entitled Achieving STEM Diversity, Fix the Classrooms, Outdated Teaching Methods Amount to Discrimination. Jason, can you give us a short summary of this paper and how you came to write it with your co-authors? Yes. Uh, So this just came out. Uh, I had the privilege of working with several distinguished uh, co-authors, including the lead author, Joe Hamelsman, who's uh, currently uh, the director of the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery and also former um, Office of Science and Technology policy uh, member in the Obama administration. And then also um, colleagues I've worked with for quite a while, including Sally Elgin uh, from WashU. Uh, She's emerita now, uh, but continues to be a really, really important um, voice for getting students involved in hands-on science education. Um, I think this paper was the product of reflection after the pandemic and ongoing equity issues as people try to understand um, how we've we spent more than a decade, I think, of, of really talking about improving, quote unquote, the STEM pipeline, which uh, many people shy away from because there's some problems with that idea. Uh, but really uh, looking at the idea that we need to not ask students to, fis- to fix uh, what they haven't broken, but really think about fixing our system. So that's kind of the genesis of this paper uh, to you know, have this policy forum and really uh, put a point on it that if we wanna make real change, uh, we're gonna have to change overall systems. Thank you for that summary. So one of the arguments you make early on in this paper is that active learning actually benefits historically excluded communities, right? And over the past like five years, I've flipped my course to being here at WashU to be to be in active learning. But I am not sure exactly how active learning would specifically benefit that population. So can you tell me more about how that is thought to work? Active learning doesn't specifically benefit uh, the term that we use here, historically excluded. There's many different terms, but other people would say underrepresented minorities. It actually benefits everybody. And the important thing is that it it benefits everyone, including sometimes groups that often get left out. When we say that something works, uh, we we may not actually have the evidence that it works for everybody. 
um, but work that was done previously in one of the citations is uh, the Tex Texas Freshman Research Initiative, which is probably one of the, the most important studies that when we apply these active learning or what we really talk about course-based research experiences, um, it really benefits students and they don't see differences in the benefits between students who are from groups that have been minoritized uh, from first and family. So really it's something that benefits everyone. Uh, and also, I guess I would say, well, the other issue of course is, it, is it's hard to do this. <laughs> and so we need to, you know, support teachers in doing it, but when, when it's done, it really benefits everyone. So it just elevates the experience of all students. Yes. Are there learning strategies that we can employ that are specific to historically excluded students? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, what would those be? When you're talking about trying to reach students that have been historically excluded from STEM, it's not that there's anything special that they need. Uh, it's stuff that you would want yourself and that would benefit you. It's just that the system is not necessarily set up for these students and therefore it, it doesn't benefit them. So for example, um, just straight off the bat uh, for quite a while now, we've known that students from these communities, let's say African-American, Hispanic, all, all these communities, they aspire and they're interested in STEM at the same rate as every other student. So at least before the college experience, they're arriving in college just as interested in being a math major, a science major, what have you. Um, but in order to connect with these students, um, you know, just like I would say every student would want, you need to be able to um, contextualize the, the course, the materials in problems that they can relate to and problems that they can grasp uh, from their own background. Um, so that could be using examples or talking about issues that they see in their own community, not issues that don't necessarily occur top of mind, but it also could be cultural sensitivity. So if you're working with indigenous students, for example, uh, there may be certain um, backgrounds and certain beliefs and certain ways of even asking questions or not asking questions that are just specific to that culture. And so really making sure that educators have resources so that they can become more familiar with the students that they engage with and understand um, how to reach them more appropriately. Uh, that's an example of trying to make sure that what you're doing is specific um, to that, to those students and, and it reaches them. Yeah, that's interesting. I was really struck by the, the weed out mentality point that you guys made of the, this idea that you know, still are you know, some a lot of these introductory courses are thought of as weeding out or getting, you know, getting rid of students uh, who aren't quote unquote can't cut it. And this, it, it, you know, it ties back to this mentality we have of we have to create places for competition because that's how we get the best people. And I guess what I'm wondering is how high up do we have to start fighting that i mean is is this something that you know individual instructors can make a difference on one of the figures in the paper here are things that could happen at the instructional level at the sort of academic leadership level and at sort of the national level that could support all those because there there could be interventions that can work across all of those levels to um help move the needle 
So at the instructor level, um, it could be our mind, our individual instructor mindset, right? That if you don't make it, you know, you just can't cut it. So the instructor needs to change their mindset, not necessarily change the curriculum, but then obviously you'll need institutional support to say that in this institution, we do support every student succeeding in every class. Um, that doesn't mean that every student will make it into med school or even should be in med school, but maybe that means that you help students identify uh, what their strengths are and give them mechanisms for uh, you know, getting stronger where they are uh, you know, weak or weren't as well prepared. Um, right. Yeah, you have to think about it that the students that are coming to you, they're already uh, just about at the adult stage and they've already been through a lot in their lives that have put them into boxes uh, unfairly. And so you have to decide, are you just gonna keep them you know, where they're at or are you, do, are you gonna have lots of ways for them to go where they would like to be? Yeah, I mean, I was, we, we discussed something sort of similar to this with respect to graduate programs over the years, which is this idea that like, are we training or not here? <laughs> like, is the idea to take students with a range of backgrounds and lift them all up or is it to take those who already have the advantage and give them more? Like, if we're always selecting students that have already have the skills needed to be successful, then what is the point of undergraduate or graduate education, <laughs> right? So, yeah, I think what you're saying is really important. Yeah, the, one of the problems is, is that, you know, you'll always have brilliant scientists out there that are just going to be succeeding, writing interesting papers, doing creative work. And so there's lots of ways where you could look at a system and say that we produce great science here, but you're certainly not going to see the students that could have produced great science and come up with ideas that no one else has really delved into, but they just didn't have that support. So yeah, you won't see what you, you've lost. I loved having all these sort of incoherent thoughts I have about teaching like put into this really clear and concise thing. Um, but one thing that I did want to ask you about was just how your personal history influenced um, anything that went into this paper or even your your current job because you do kind of have an unusual trajectory where you are went right into working in this teaching environment without a PhD, without a postdoc. And um, I wonder if, did you have early experiences doing research as an undergraduate? When I went to college, I, I started working in lab since I was an undergrad and uh, since freshman year. I thought that I would go to the life sciences building and I would start at the top floor and every year just work uh, you know, on a different floor and just try everything. Uh, I stayed on the top floor, ecology evolution and worked there the whole time, uh -huh. but I was always interested in, you know, in the lab work. Uh, then uh, in terms of PhD or no PhD, in some ways I felt uh, it's, it's, it's like a, it was something that I'll probably do when I'm 60 or something I'll think about doing. I love it. Uh, I'm always kind of a backward uh, person in that way. And uh, and so having the chance to work with students of many, many different backgrounds, um, it's really, it's really rewarding to see that. So, uh, yeah, to make a very long comment short, uh, this paper is sort of reflective of the fact that we really owe it to every student 
to give them the best possible experience. And we don't want to criticize the teachers for not doing it, but we want to criticize the system for not providing the support to do what we know works best. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I had a conversation with our provost. He had uh, sent out this tweet that was like, nobody should be using lectures in science education ever again. And I was like, well, fine for you to say, but like, that's how we were all trained. So where are we going to, where do we have the space and time to learn how to do this differently? And instead of like escalating things, he just like invited me to come talk to him. And we talked about teaching, learning sabbaticals and all these ways in which it would be great to give faculty the opportunity and training to make these important pedagogical changes without asking them to do it like the first two weeks of January, which is also when everybody's writing their NSF grants. You know what I mean? Well, in a non-related but somewhat related preprint to this, uh, we basically suggest that for about $50 million, uh, the country could invest in a center which would support teachers in making that transition, train them in making that transition, and even give them course-based research experiences that were very relevant to their subdiscipline or their specific interests right. and make it easier for them to bring research experiences, especially into the freshman, sophomore realm, where that's where you kind of return, uh, retain students and increase graduation rates. And again, for all students. Yeah. I was so skeptical of that idea that freshmen would be capable of doing undergraduate research, but they've really made that work in such a spectacular way. And now you see undergraduates who are, have, you know, have had three, four, five research experiences by the time they hit their senior year and they understand so much about how research works. It's really amazing. Agreed. Um, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but um, I wanted to come back to this idea of um, how the activities that we we often associate with the idea of diversifying STEM typically involve changing the behavior of the minoritized population, right? So they should behave in a particular way, or we need to get them up to a particular level, or extra meetings for the minoritized students, etc. And um, one thing that you say in your paper is that that's not the way to go. Instead, majoritarians need to be changing our behavior, the teachers, the instructors, and also the systems need to change. And one thing I was thinking about was that in some ways, the COVID pandemic forced systems to change. So it forced teachers to start teaching remotely, which of course had a lot of a, a wide range of impacts. But one thing it did was to make courses more accessible and inclusive in some ways. I know in other ways they didn't, but there are lots of other ways in which we can think that COVID changed things. But it seems like the systems that COVID changed are now sort of in the process of returning to the way things were. Something that we're struggling with here is how much do we want to return to the way things were? What can we bring with us? And how do we take the students along with us? So do you have any thoughts about returning to teaching and how to do that in a way that brings lessons with us from the COVID era? So I don't know. My, I guess the answer is I don't know because I don't have the general 
um, university teaching experience. I kind of understand from faculty that I work with uh, what it's been like for them. Right. But I think across all domains, uh, we you know, there has to be an honest look back and an honest discussion, uh, especially among you know people who might not voice their opinions or feel that their opinions are important, but you actually have to actively collect uh, those opinions and then respect those opinions on what they think is needed in order for them to learn best. For our intro bio courses, the class has been hybrid, I think, for the last couple of semesters. And so they're trying to collect data on how students do if they only attend by Zoom and or if they come back in person. And um, I think that will be interesting to look at those numbers and to also, I think, as you say, like, ask ourselves if there's a big difference, who are the students in each of those populations and how might they best be served? Not just by saying, well, students coming in person do better. So now you have to come in person. There might be more nuance than that. I think, you know, another angle of it might be also that there's always going to be majority minority, right? Um, Where... 80% of people want something and the other 20% want something different. And Mm -hmm. how can we make that less of a zero sum game? Uh, That might be the optimizing factor to sort of say, wait a second, we don't have to make it so that there's just winners or losers, but that there could be, you know, equitable solutions for everybody. But we'll, but again, for that to happen, that may mean that there's significant resourcing and that the universities and that others will need to provide those resources or the students will need to demand them, the faculty too. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's always the question is if, it's, if the answer is you need to do both, um, how, you know, how do you do that without just putting all the burden on somebody to do more for less? Yeah, there's definitely balances that need, need to be struck in one way. Maybe those conversations would not have even been entertained before. Um, so it's like, try to make sure we don't lose the momentum or lose the memory of the fact that, no, wait a second, we did have a solution that, that wasn't perfect, but it was closer. And so can we do better in a suit, you know, when we actually have time to sit and think and then, you know, align resources to what the real needs are as quote unquote, we get through the pandemic, um, you know, things will want to go back to. Uh, where they were, right? Everybody wants to default or the majority wants to default. And I'm part of it, right? I'm, I'm, I consider myself an able-bodied person, right? Who uh, didn't necessarily, you know, closed captioning or other features from virtual conferencing. Those weren't necessarily things that I counted on, but others, others do. Um, so one, I think it's, it's incumbent upon everybody who has roles in um, in teaching and organizing conferences and thinking about how we include all scientists uh, to uh, really do some thinking and some uh, questioning and raising these issues among colleagues who are also involved to sort of, sort of say, look at what we were able to accomplish. I think everybody was tweeting and conversing about, oh, we've gotten so many more attendees from countries that we, we would have never had participate or uh, people who had, uh, you know, everything from people who are neurodiverse, had different abilities, you know, commenting on, wait a second, you told us before, it's not possible to hold a virtual conference. And then all of a sudden it becomes possible, right? When the majority um, sees that it could, that that's what their choice is. So I think it's a matter of honesty uh, and it's a matter of really listening to people and their opinions uh, or really their experiences or lived experiences to say that we can do better. 
Um, I certainly love in-person conferences and I feel I'm more effective at an in-person conference than I am at a Zoom meeting where I'm totally gonna be distracted uh, and have other things to do. So is it possible to do both? I hope so and I think so. We had a conversation in our one of the communities I'm involved with called Life Science Trainers uh, where we had that specific discussion about what do we wanna retain? I remember one group there uh, who does training in Australia Australian Biocommons group, uh, you know, they commented that actually many of their uh, normal workshop attendees actually preferred the virtual experience because in their case, everybody's so spread out, it meant that they didn't have to do as much travel. So I think it's, a, you know, there's lots of individual decisions that need to happen for different organizations, but there's a lot, there's a common playbook of what's possible now that we can't throw away um, because we need to include people who weren't included before, couldn't, couldn't have the same experience. As you mentioned, we've, you know, we're seeing at these online conferences so much more inclusion in terms of the number of people attending and being able to at least view the talks. But I think there is a strong sense that there is a lot that you get out of an in-person meeting that is more than that and 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 that people have really really missed and so there is i think a lot of meetings there is seems to be a, a real desire to get back to a mostly in-person meeting whereas you recently organized a conference that was again all online totally intentionally and unapologetically can you tell us a little bit about like what you know why you guys decided to to do that and and what you what you learned out of that? And... Sure. So that wasn't my idea. Uh, if anything went wrong with it, no. It's uh, it was actually the the idea of uh, Jeffrey Rossmer at UC Davis uh, and also some other co co organizers who he pinged, uh, and we you know as many were disappointed about you know the lack of of online conferences and one of the big ones that we normally attend uh, being canceled two years in a row. You know, in, obviously people love in-person in ID2, uh, love seeing people and getting a chance to talk and, you know, um, all of that stuff. But at the same time, conferences, I think are tremendously important to people who are really early in their career um, as a chance to showcase their own work and have a forum for what they're doing that goes above and beyond, you know, just the publication, which is great, but they also want to be able to share what they're working on at many different levels. Um, in a, in a in-person conference, there's also, a, there's basically gatekeeping, which is not referred to as gatekeeping, right? Because there's the price of the conference, which is the gate, even though you walked through it and didn't even notice there was a gate because you had funding. Um, there's the location of the conference, which is the gate if you're coming from the other side of the world. Uh, there is the selection of talks, which is a gate. Okay, yeah, there should be some, uh, some mechanism to screen talks, but oftentimes in an in-person conference, the limitations means that uh, a lot of things just won't have a chance to get presented. So we put together this conference with co-organizers on different continents and time zones and made it a 24-hour thing so that literally... Uh, it could not only be virtual, but could also have uh, sessions which are happening during your time zone, rather than forcing people to stay up awake. Um, so it, it was the effort of just a few people 
Um, it was quite low budget. We did have some sponsorships, um, but it just showed that with just interest and a few people volunteering their efforts, it's possible to do this. So shouldn't that be possible for every scientific society to have a real investment in virtual um, programming that's at the level of a conference, so not just a webinar that happens occasionally. Yeah, there's so many things that we need to rethink about um, conferences because they are so important to people's career. How can we bring the good stuff that we've learned uh, back into them? I, I totally think that's great. And I do think as a mechanism for sort of getting your science out there, seeing what other science is out there, I think there's a lot to be said for these virtual conferences. How much uh, of the other parts of conferences were you able to sort of get rolling? So, I mean, we certainly had, we tried to organize sessions there uh, where there were a couple of keynotes. So a keynote to anchor every four hour block uh, across the 24 hours. And then we had networking time where people could use GatherTown. Uh, we were hoping to try Zoom events. There's actually this whole cool conference platform um, unfortunately, it would have excluded people from China um, because they would need to have paid accounts. It's, a, it's, it's not Zoom's fault entirely. It's the government's fault there. Um, but, you know, we, we made conscious choices to try to be as inclusive as we could. Did it work? Uh, the, what we did worked uh, in terms of trying to give spaces for people not only to see talks, but also to talk with each other, which is a really valuable thing. Uh, we'd love to do it again next year, including, you know, more options for posters and lightning talks. And uh, it's, it's uh, then everything goes online. So I think if I look back at my notes, we had uh, something around almost more than 1800 hours of watch time between the webinars and people watching on YouTube. So it, it was possible for a small group to do this. So I think everyone, every society or every group that has a specialized domain uh, could, could think about how they can incorporate these things uh, to make it possible. And it doesn't have to compete with, you know, if you have your in-person too or hybrid, there, there's multiple ways that, that everything can win, I think. <laughs> I was involved in the technology needed to uh, bring this conference to, together. We needed a Zoom account uh, with webinar, you know, functionalities, a couple hundred dollars. We needed a, a place to upload files, which is $100 a month. A YouTube account was free. Um, it's really people's time. And it really is other things. Not, I don't think it's really the technology because um, we did it on a, on a, at a shoestring budget. Uh, I see. So, I, I mean, there, but that doesn't mean that, you know, those costs aren't real. I think, I think it is true that you can have a, a totally virtual event for relatively cheap, but there are things I think you, you, you miss. I mean, I, 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 have, I have had a lot of trouble with GatherTown personally, just getting around it, it glitching and not, you know, like it's just really hard to actually have a conversation. And so the spontaneity of walking around and talking to people, I think is, it, there's still a long way to go in these virtual spaces. I agree. And also, I mean, I don't want to minimize the fact that there are other costs, you know, everything from reviewer time or other things that have to go behind it. Because if you are asking the same people who put on the in-person conference to also put on the 
conference for this, you know, you've now doubled the time that they need to, you know, be paid. So, but yeah, it's not perfect. Um, the question is, might that be a better solution for someone who it's just completely out of the question for them to make it into the in-person conference? How can we do both? How can there be, I don't want to say counter program, but a, but a virtual stream to a conference where people who attend that conference then look in on the sessions that are happening. People who give an in-person talk and a virtual talk can do so with basically the same um, level of ease, if that's possible. Uh, that they're virtual, you know, as the conference has in-person networking things, and then the, there's online versions. It won't be the same, but it might be for people who have no other option, um, significant improvement over absolutely zero. So I guess that's yeah. what we're... <laughs> I mean, do I guess one question I keep coming back to is how important is it that talks at conferences are presented live and not recorded at all. The, the reason that I go to conferences is almost never the talks. Now I'm not a trainee anymore, and so maybe trainees might have a different view, but I think most people, the in-person conferences, is not about the talks. And so by saying, well, we have to have these in-person talks that we somehow have to record and make available, it just adds huge costs to everything. Not only do I agree, but I also think that for people like myself who are constantly getting Zoom burn from being on online too many hours with all these meetings and, and things like that, you know, when is the last time you've watched a Zoom recording of a meeting that you missed or a webinar that you missed? I would say it's fairly rare yep. uh, that you've ever gone back. Sometimes I have to, but, you know, most times I avoid it if I could. So I agree with you that our, do we need to rethink the structure of conferences significantly and to, you know, that there are structured, you know, would a, you know, would a conference be better if it was really topical discussion sessions? So it, where everybody had a way to participate and talk about, you know, you know would it would just like an, uh, a, a three-day poster session where everybody presents their poster, would that be more effective than a conference? Uh, where you sit in a room and you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I I hear everything you guys are saying, and but the one thing I wonder about is this: the emphasis on networking. Like, I worry that if we return emphasis to networking and meeting people and having people see your face, then we again privilege those who can attend in person. We emphasize like these sort of um, what what already I don't know I would like to de-emphasize who you know and emphasize what you're doing more and so one thing I I think about when I think about the return to in person with all of the benefits that we've talked about I I worry a little bit about. Um, um, emphasis on networking, which is just so inequitable. No, but I think it's a true statement, right? Uh, because there may be people who giving a live talk for them is, is, is virtually impossible for various reasons, but they're not going to be able to really deliver it for that 10 or 15 minutes. Whereas if you gave them on their own time and they could make a video and carefully edit it, and they chose to present their work in that method, that would be fine, but they actually really would vastly prefer and do better on a you know, medium that's different. 
So maybe the question is, you know, sort of what are the different media that people would choose or would want to present themselves in or their work in? And how can we allow for all of those to have as equal footing as possible? Um, I also wish, you know, you know, the whole thing about it's who you know versus what you do. Um, those are probably some personal things that we all have to work on to realize that people may present to us if we're deciding on who we want to collaborate with or who we'd like to hire or what students do we want to work with. You know, those are personal things for us to become more aware of other people's preferences and backgrounds and contexts so that we don't, you know, um, are, that we minimize uh, biases wherever we can. But I, I mean, I think I totally agree with Liz that that networking in general is exclusive because it's it's hard to do if you don't if you can't be in person. But I think it's still Im it's immensely important for just the way our society works. One, I don't know that you want to get rid of something because some people will like that and that will be the best thing for them. Even the people that you might think were excluded by it, actually that might be what they prefer. Yeah. I think it, it's kind of, how do we figure out what all the options are? Yeah. And then, and then also once we figure out what those options are, how do we make sure that if someone has a particular option, that that option, okay, we make that option available to them, but in the end, that option really won't help you. It won't be considered. It won't be factored in. Right. So if somebody, you know, right, they'll just like we do now, not everyone can give a talk in a conference format on a schedule that has eight slots for speakers. But then we say, well, we have posters and it's true, but you know what, you're, if you're a trainee and you were counting on hopefully being seen in the context of a talk, the poster is not necessarily equivalent. Yeah. There will be people who seek you out. So it's a matter of asking what all the options. Also, other, other cultures have completely different ways uh, and, and completely different protocols for dealing with people who are strangers to them and how they decide or, or do not decide to interact with people whom they don't know. Um, that could also happen for genders, right? So it's, it's really about trying to expose what we think is the default and, and saying that what's default is what has been, but it's not what it has to be. What do we need to completely break apart and restructure? Because um, it's, it's more than just what's exposed by COVID. COVID is just the latest example. So, and I think there's, there's two parts of that. One is, you know, what do we think is good and what, is, is, um, what are the options? And then what do we invest in? And then also, who's the we? Who's the we when we say that we think it's good? <laughs> yes. Well, we as a... As a an inclusive community, um, but or a scientific society. Historically, the emphasis has been on one, maybe two large in-person meetings. And most societies are trying to go back to that. Let's sprinkle in a bit of, a bit of hybridness somehow, uh, because um, A, we're locked into a uh, contract with a large venue and um, and B, it's it's really expensive, so we'll we'll put some talks online. I'm really interested in rethinking that because I think that is just going to lock in the sort of the the worst, you know, keep the bad throughout the good of the, what we've what we've learned. So I, I'm really you know like, does it make sense to have these really large 
meetings at all. You know, the plenary talk at ASPB is in a room so large that you cannot see the speaker. You are watching a video presentation. You just happen to be in the same room as the video presenter. Why stream it? I'll watch it whenever, or I will watch it. You know, what is it's it's that's not what's valuable to me. And why would we put in big money to be able to do that? If you drop that, can you bring the cost of the meeting down a little bit and then make it more affordable for some people? I, I feel like we're just not having that kind of discussion at all. Well, usually when you're when you're talking about whether it's a science, scientific society or even our own little online thing, online thing, you're already starting from a position where the people who have uh, who are making decisions are the people who have time to make those decisions, and they you know can take time out of other things to do to to decide decide that. So automatically, you're starting from a place where the pe- there's going to be people making decisions who may not reflect your needs or your reality how how do we restructure things i i guess the question is will scientific societies and or will um you know any kind of convenings that that support these these things how much do the individual members actually exercise their voice and or how how well are they heard yeah that's a question and and again it comes down to those voices that are not being served may be very small and if they're not listened to, why would they stay? And then you ask yourself later, like, well, why aren't those people represented at our meeting? It's like, well, you already told them a long time ago that they won't be listened to, so they're not coming. Societies aren't really built to change that easily. You know, either it's, you know, so you have a, a rotating presidency, so you're only doing this for a short time, and, you know, and, and some of these changing sort of the the direction of the freight train uh, takes a lot of time. We have an election every year for the next uh, leaders of our society, but they're not necessarily campaigning on a vision of how I'm going to change everything because they can't. They're, they're there for a limited time. And so you don't, it's not as easy to hear everyone's voice and come to a quote unquote consensus and, and change directions. Well, uh, maybe let's sort of step back and sort of, I guess, the, the real conversation to have, because I agree with you on the things you said, is that is, a, is any scientific society serving its purpose? You know, what are, the, what are the goals of the society? How can you come up with metrics and, and policies and principles that hold everybody accountable and that, you know, quote unquote, the least of us uh, can say something and actually really feel that they're being heard. And that's a challenge for every single human organization. They all uh, are flawed in very similar ways, uh, but can we do better? Something we did for the Arabidopsis meeting last year that was held in Seattle was to have like 50% of the sessions be community organized. That ended up bringing a bunch of people into the meeting who none of the organizers knew. One thing that I don't think that's happened, that'd be a great outcome of anybody that's listening to this, is, is to my knowledge, there hasn't really been any way to convene or any convening of, of people who organize these conferences oh, right. to get together and actually share what you just shared. The conference on conferences? Yeah, right. There, there probably needs to be, maybe, you know, there's a lot to learn from even smaller conferences who are more connected to their communities and sharing some of those great ideas and innovations. 
So, uh, Jason, this was great, wide-ranging and, and super interesting. Um, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time. If people have other thoughts, want to get in contact with you, how, how should they do that? Yes, folks can find me on Twitter, Jason Williams NY, or also my last name, Williams at CSHL.edu. I'm happy to uh, have conversations with folks. Okay. And Liz, how can people get in touch with you? As always, people can find me on Twitter at, at eHaswell. And you can find me on Twitter at BaxterTWI, BaxterTwee. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at, at TaprootPodcast. And with that, thank you so much, Jason. That was awesome. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Society of Plant Biologists and the Plant Day website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell. Transcripts are by Joe Stormer. If you like this episode, tell your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll bring you another story behind the science next week. <laughs>